Boker Tov, good morning. Welcome to our Aliyah day. I am uh, happy to be with all of you who are watching and listening from all across the Fruited Plain. Hope that you're having a, a great day today as this is the uh, prep day for the upcoming Shabbat. The Shabbat of, uh, what are we on? Adar 25. Adar 25 will be tomorrow. Today, we are Adar 24, and so um, we will be soon in the second Adar, because it's a leap year, so Baruch Hashem. We are in Parashah Vayakel. Uh, this is going to be the sixth and seventh reading, the sixth and seventh Aliyot today, and so um, we find ourselves in the Art School Chumash on, uh, let's see, I was, I was one page off, let me see, back here. Here it is. We're on page 525, chapter 37, the sixth aliyah, aliyah seis, begins in verse 17, talking about making the menorah. We are con continuing to discuss the uh, construction of the tabernacle and all that it implies uh, literally and spiritually. So it says, he made the menorah of pure gold, hammered out that he make the menorah, its base and its shaft, its cups, its knobs, and its flowers were from it. Six branches emerged from its sides, three branches of the menorah from its side, and three branches of the menorah from its second side. Three cups engraved like almonds on one branch, a knob and a flower, and three cups engraved like almonds, a knob and a flower on the next branch. So for the six branches that emerged from the menorah, and on the menorah were four cups engraved like almonds, its knobs and its blossoms. A knob was under two of the branches from it, a knob was under two of the branches from it, and a knob was under two of the branches from it. For the six branches emerging from it, their knobs and branches were of it, of a single hammered piece. So the uh, menorah was made out of a single hammered piece of gold, which would have required, really, frankly, uh, a supernatural miracle, really, to make that happen. As we learn in the Midrash, that that's exactly what happened. It was a supernatural miracle. So it says here, um, in verse 23, He made its lamps seven, and its tongues and spoons of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold did he make it, and all its utensils. Can you imagine what the menorah would have been worth? in terms of the price of gold. I don't know what the price of gold is now. At one time recently here, it was like something like $1,200 an ounce or something to that effect. And uh, here we have a talent, an entire talent of gold being used. Verse 25. He made the incense altar of acacia wood, a cubit its length, a cubit its width, square, and two cubit its heights. From it were its horns. He covered it with pure gold, its roof and its walls all around, and its horns. And he made for it a gold crown all around. He made for it two gold rings under its crown in its, in its two corners, on its two sides, a housing for staves with which to carry it. He made the staves of acacia wood and covered them with gold. He made the anointment oil holy and the incense spices pure, a... a perfumer's handiwork. Amen. Just a little note as I was reading this about the uh, tabernacle. I've mentioned it before, but when you think about the tabernacle, we are 
reading basically about a, a, a mobile tent in the wilderness. And uh, some might think that the tabernacle was, uh, was, well, it was a tent, right? It's kind of makeshift. And we've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating now, that the elements that went into making the tabernacle included gold, silver, copper, fine linen, all kinds of other finery, craftsmanship or whatever. So this tent was actually very luxurious. It's, very lu- it's a luxury tent. And uh, as I said before, I meant to look this up the other day to see what my calculation was from uh, several years back, probably about four or five years ago. I um, kind of went through each element and uh, priced it out based on the, the, the you know our current modern day pricing. And uh, to make, uh, I want to, I want to say that something to, to make a tent like this. You're talking about like, you know, I mean, upwards of ten million dollars to make a tabernacle if you actually use the gold and so on. The cover of the ark, for instance, the the uh, mercy seat, as it's sometimes referred to, that went on top of the ark was made of solid gold, whereas the ark itself, you know, was made of wood and gold. But anyway, just a reminder that of of what Hashem thinks about His house. You know, because so, some people have the mindset that when it comes to building a house of God, that we should, um, we should, uh, you know, I don't know, I guess be, may, maybe be frugal. I mean, we all should be frugal. We should always be frugal. But what I mean is, is that some people are cheap. There's a difference between cheap and frugal, right? And so some people, when it comes to, and I've, I'm just bringing this up because I've, uh, being in this, uh, in this world most of my life. You have people that'll uh, put brand new carpet in their house, and then they'll bring to the church or to the synagogue the leftover. They'll donate the leftover carpet, or the, or not the leftover carpet, but they'll donate the old carpet. Believe me, it's happened. Rebetzin and I, uh, one time we did a uh, a garage sale many, 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 many years ago, way before Sar Shalom. It was a it was a garage sale to benefit our congregation. And uh, we asked people to bring things to the garage sale that we could uh, we could sell. And uh, obviously, you're donating that thing, and because we're going to sell it, and you know whatever. And somebody actually brought Katura will remember this. Somebody actually brought a chair to sell in the garage sale that had no legs. Yeah, I mean it's anyway. I guess what I'm trying to say is we have to really look at ourselves, look at our heart, and say. Uh, how do we want to treat the house of God? And I'm not just talking about the furnishings, but how do we treat it in general? How do we treat it? We treat it like it's a it's a, a gold cup, or do we treat it like it's just, um, you know, not worthy of anything? Just something to think about. I, I always think about this when I think about the tabernacle and and what what God put into the tabernacle. And then, and then think about the temple. Think about the temple. How much, if this was the tabernacle, how much more was the temple? So... Anyway, just something to think about. Chapter 38. He made the elevation off, offering altar of acacia wood, five cubits its length and five cubits its width, square, and three cubits its height. He made its horns on its four corners from where from it were horns, and he covered it with copper. He made all the utensils of the altar, the pots, the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans. He made all his utensils of copper. He made for the altar a netting of copper a meshwork below its surrounding border down, downwards until its midpoint. He cast four rings of the four edges of the copper netting as housing for the staves. 
He made the staves of the acacia wood and covered them with copper. He inserted the staves and the rings of the sides of the altar with which to carry it. Hollow of boards did he make it. He made the laver of copper and its base of copper from the mirrors of the legions who massed at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now this is a wonderful discussion here in the art school Humash about the mirrors and the shiny labor. As I mentioned before when we were talking about the shiny labor in a previous aliyah, the shiny labor for me is one of my most favorite um, pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And there's various reasons uh, for that, as I discussed earlier, but one of the reasons that it's I just think it's such a beautiful expression is because it was actually made from the the copper mirrors that uh, the women uh, had were, were using. They're, they're vanity mirrors, if you will. So it says here in the art school homage, there's an entire discussion about this, which is really wonderful. It says, from the mirrors of the legions, that is, the laver, the kior, was a very large copper basin, it says here in the tabernacle courtyard, from which the kohanim were required to wash their hands and feet before performing the service. It was not made of copper from the regular contributions, since the laver is not listed below uh, among the items that were made from the copper. So when it talks about what was made from the copper and what was not, the laver is not mentioned. So therefore we understand it was made from a, a, a different source of copper. It says our verse tells us that the laver was made exclusively from the brightly polished sheets of copper that the women had used as mirrors in those days. And when the call went out for contributions, the women came with their copper mirrors and piled them up at Moses' dwelling, which at that time is where he had been meeting with Hashem. So it says Moses was reluctant to accept the gifts of the tabernacle. Why? Because they had been used to incite lust. That was his opinion. He thought that the, uh, the women used the mirrors to make themselves uh, beautiful. And as a result, that was an element of lust. It was something that was used to attract the spirit of lust. That was his understanding. But God told him something different. God said, you're wrong about that. He said, do you remember in Egypt where the men had come home and uh, they were exhausted from, a, 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 you know, it says here, a long day of backbreaking labor in the fields. They had been beaten down literally, physically and emotionally and spiritually. So God explains to them that the women use the mirrors to beautify themselves. Why? Because they were full of uh, evil? No. They did this so that the men would be encouraged, enticed to continue normal family relationship. Because God understood that if we discontinue, uh, and the women understood this too, by the way, I should say. Women understood that if we discontinue normal family relationships, we stop having babies, then the nation will not grow. The principal way that we grow our nation is through procreation. You know, uh, just um, to get a little po political right now, this is why we're seeing this uh, assault on children uh, with the progressive liberal left in America, we want to we want to kill babies in the womb. We want to now we want to murder them even if when they come out of the womb. We're now into infanticide, right, in our country, or at least at least that political party. And then you had a prominent uh, 
you know, uh, Congresswoman, what is it, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, saying just the other day that because the world is so bad and because uh, global warming or whatever the climate change is at, at this moment, it changes all the time, no pun intended, um, she's saying, is it is it even reasonable, should we even have children? So she... Not, so the ones that we we have, we're trying to kill, and now that that political mindset is trying to discourage people from even having children. What is this ultimately? What is this war on babies? And it goes back to the Torah. It ultimately goes back to God. It's a war on God. Why? Because the first thing that God said to mankind was... Be fruitful and multiply. And we also learn through studying Jewish literature that when the that heaven has so many souls, human souls, that Hashem has created, and not till all of those souls are emptied out of Shemayim, so to speak, will the Mashiach come. So he encourages us to be fruitful and multiply in order that we should have children to be able to teach them Torah, right? That's why you need to have babies, so we can, we can teach them Torah. They can grow up in a Lapid house. But it's also to hasten the coming of the Mashiach. So now you have, let's just, I'm just going to call it what it is. You have the demonic mindset that wants to murder those babies. Why? So they don't learn Torah. And that they don't even, uh, by, by bringing their soul into the world, they don't bring about the Mashiach. So now we're going to murder the ones that we have, and if we are not having one yet, don't have one. That's the mindset. But what we see here in the Torah is that godly people, godly women said, no, even in the midst of, of back-breaking labor, we still need to have babies. They understood that the children that were born to them were going to be born into slavery, but they believed in the redemption. And the only way to bring about the redemption was to maintain the nation, to maintain the people. This is why the labor, I mean, really, if you think about it, it's just such a beautiful uh, element. And here it is. We're talking about it now in, the, in, this, in this context of this wicked, wicked uh, culture that we have. Politicians used to go around and kiss babies. Now they just want to kill them. It says here, thanks to this, legions, thanks to what? Thanks to the women's efforts, legions of Jewish children were born. To the contrary, God said, not only should the mirrors be accepted, but they should be used in their entirety to make the labor. In other words, every single mirror must be used. So there, therefore, as it says here, this is why the Torah does not give a specific size for the laver. It gives a specific size of dimension for all the other uh, pieces of furniture, but not the laver. Why? Because it depended on how many mirrors were given. Because every single mirror was going to be used. Why? Because of the purpose of the mirrors themselves. The purpose of the mirror is all about life. It's all about... pro. It, the Kior was pro-life. How about that? 
So it says the laver was unique in that its water would be used in the future to bring peace between husband and wife by providing the innocent woman accused of adultery. This is from Numbers chapter 5, 17, and also verse 28. So when it came time that the, uh, the if a man was ever suspicious of his wife, and by the way, I just want to say that there was a lot of due process involved in that. The man could not just be jealous. He couldn't just have a jealous nature and say, you know what, I'm just jealous. I think my wife is cheating on me and just drag her down to the, uh, uh, to the temple and, and embarrass her and all this kind of stuff. Because part of the ceremony there was to remove her head covering, which was considered an embarrassment. But no, the, 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 the wife, if you read the Tractate Sota, you find that the husband had to tell his wife specifically, I have suspicion about that man, and I don't like the fact that you know he tries to be alone with you or vice versa, so you should not be alone with that specific man. And he has to do that in front of two witnesses so that everybody understands that he made that um, warning. Only if she, after that, only if after that, that she has actually been secluded with that man in, in a room by themselves or whatever, only then can he take her down to the temple and he has to do that with witnesses. Two Torah scholars have to escort them there, etc., etc., etc. A lot of, lot of going on. I, just want, I want to bring that up because... Just a curse. This is why you need the oral Torah, because a cursory reading of the of the written Torah only would imply that a husband could just uh, arbitrarily uh, accuse his wife and then bring her down and, and, and embarrass her and shame her and all this kind of stuff, and it makes it sound like the Torah is anti-woman, which is not true. That's why you need the oral Torah. Okay, so, <clears throat> but. When she does, if if this all happened and she in, finds herself at the temple and having to prove prove her innocence, it, it, remember that the Torah says makes her drink a, uh, a, a a potion, so to speak. Not really a potion, but really it's just it's water, right? It's it's water, but the water that's taken is taken from the laver. <laughs> it's taken from the laver of the righteous women's mirrors who did not use their mirrors for lust or infidelity but use their mirrors for godly procreation. So she's judged. She's judged by the mirrors of her, the women that went before her. Is she one of their daughters or is she a daughter of Hasatan Kurspihi? So if she drinks the water and she's guilty, then basically she dies. But if she drinks the water and she's innocent, then not only is she exonerated, but the uh, Torah tells us that she's actually given the ability to be to produce even more children and be more prolific. So it's a great blessing. It can be, but it all comes from the uh, the cure. So it says here in the article Humash, by the way, that those uh, those who mass it says the women massed at Moshe's tent to bring their mirrors, according to Rashi. Ankalos writes that the women had always masked at Moshe's tent to pray and to hear the teachings of God. This is, goes back to the reality that women um, are just historically and, and what have you, deeply spiritual. And so they were accustomed to massing at Moshe's tent because they were uh, accustomed to go there um, to pray.
Right. That's what they did anyway. So that's that's why they ended up going and taking their uh, their mirrors there. I want to bring something out. Going back a little bit, switching topics uh, slightly. This is from Pituke Hotam. This is just uh, an insight that I came across a few days ago, and we just haven't uh, we haven't got we didn't we didn't get to it. <clears throat> so it's this is from chapter thirty six and verse four. It says, all the wise people came, those performing all the sacred work, each of them from his work that they were doing. So Pituke Hotam takes that verse and brings down this very intriguing insight. He says, the Gemara cautions us, the Gemara is the Talmud, the Gemara cautions us, saying in Barakot 6b, a person should always be careful to pray Minka properly. Why? For Eliyahu the prophet was only answered during Minka prayer. Remember the story of Eliyahu the prophet? That he took on the prophets of Baal. Um, he did this on Mount Carmel, which is uh, basically uh, just right across the, the valley from, from Akko and uh, also Haifa. Uh, Rebetzin and I uh, have had the opportunity to actually go to the spot, not the tourist spot, but the actual spot that the locals... Uh, say through tradition was the actual spot. There's basically nothing there. It's a, just a really beautiful uh, overlook of um, of the valley, and we've been there. And so it's a, when you're standing there, you can see the Mediterranean Ocean. You can see Akko. When uh, Elijah was standing there, you can imagine that he would have been able to see all those prophets of Baal, the 450 or, or so, uh, and all the people coming ac- across the valley to where he was. But anyway. It's you remember the story there. They he called upon them to make an offering, make an altar, call upon their fake god. He he mocked them, and then and then he made an altar and had the altar mikvah, and then he called down fire and God brought down the fire. When did this happen? It happened at Minka time. That's what the scripture tells us. Minka prayer. So it says you can only determine a person's fear of Hashem at the time of Minka, because at the at that time of day. A person is heavily involved with his business matters. If he stops everything and turns to heavenly matters, it clearly demonstrates his fear and love of Hashem. However, if he neglects heavenly matters and remains involved in his personal affairs, it shows that for this person, serving Hashem is considered a burden and a hindrance. Therefore, our sages have warned us. A person should always be careful to pray Minka prayer. You know, some say that the Torah is a burden, and uh, of course there's others such as us that say, no, the, 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 the Torah is a, is a great joy and a great pleasure. And so which is it? Is it a burden or is it, is it a pleasure? And the, and the answer is, it all depends on us. Some say that when the uh, children of Israel came to the, the waters of Marah, some, some of the sages say that the water was not necessarily bitter. It wasn't necessarily sweet. It all depended on the people's amuna. And so, you know, when you, when you look at the Minka prayer, if it's saying here that if we stop and we, we take that time to pray and we, uh, you know, pause what we're doing, whatever we're doing, um, then what it means is that the Torah of God is sweet to us. However, if we are busy doing something, and we say, you know, I, I'll get to that in a minute. And Zeke and Yosef talked about this in this class. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I don't have time right now, or we just forget it altogether. Um, then what that is really saying to us is that the that we really believe that the Torah is a burden and it's bitter to us. So really, 
whether or not the Torah is, is good or bad is all dependent on us. The Torah is ultimately good. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what, as far as our perception, it's, it's dependent upon our amona. So he writes, all the wise people came, those performing all the sacred word. He says, this is a, referring to the time of Minka. The wise people always keep their mind on praying to Hashem and serving him. They are always looking forward to the next opportunity to pray. The wise people who fear Hashem put aside their personal affairs and come to serve Hashem, especially the sacred work, which is prayer. The verse is therefore teaching us that the wise people came to perform the sacred work of prayer. From where did they had had they come? The verse continues. Each of them from his work that they were doing. So he's bringing out the idea that, look, they all gathered for prayer. And from where did they gather? They gathered from their work. In other words, they had been working. They stopped working to come pray. And that's just, this is how uh, the rabbi in Pituke Hotam is relating it back to Minka. That this the test of our Muna, this is why God gave us a prayer time in the middle of our workday. Because life is a test. And... I just want to encourage you that uh, some people might read this and go, oh my gosh, I've, I've, I've been terrible at, at this or whatever. Great. So now you have the opportunity to do better. This is the beautiful thing about God. He, the reason he brings these things to our attention is so that we can improve. That's the whole point. So it says, each of them from his work that they were doing, each person put aside whatever work he was doing and came to perform the sacred work of prayer. By the way, it's just a reminder that everything that we have, whatever our income is, all of it comes from God. He's the one who decides how much we're going to make and how much we're not going to make. He decides what house we live in. He decides what state we live in. He decides what kind of car we have, it all comes from him. So when we, we're tempted in the middle of the day, we're, we're, we got a lot going on, we're very busy, we don't want to stop. And that's indicative of not realizing where the source is. So if we want to be successful in whatever we're doing, whether... Whatever we're doing, we're in the middle of a project, and we're we, we're trying. I got to get this done. I'm I'm in a, I'm in a deadline. I've really I've really got to get going. God says, "Look, if you take stop and take 20, 30 minutes to talk to me, while you're talking to me, I'm getting it done." So it says, "The initial letters of all the wise people came. Those performing the sacred work, each of them." I, I, for the sake of time, I won't read the entire phrase. It's kind of long. But if you take the initial letters of that phrase in Hebrew, it has the numerical value of 103, which is the same value as Minka. The significance of this, he writes, is that most often at the time of Minka, when a person would need to put aside his own work. So, uh, I'm sorry, I, I misread that. So the significance of this is that it is most often at the time of Minka when a person would need to put aside his work. Therefore, a person must be especially careful and enthusiastic to pray Minka, for this prayer is a true test of his love of Hashem. 
And so it's just a reminder to us of the significance of Minka. And isn't it fascinating to me that, uh, you know, for Shakarit, we have a lot of, um, well, there's, there's particular mitzvahs with Shakarit, right? For, especially for a man. We don the, the talit gadol. We wrapped the tefillin. The prayers are lengthy. Uh, you know, Shakarit is, you know, really 45 minutes to an hour uh, it can be more of course it can be a little bit less and the, but it, the point being is that it's it's a lot of you know thunder and lightning you come to minka and basically it's uh you have the for all intents and purposes you have um you have uh the psalm you have the amida we often include um you know the uh um sacrificial uh um scriptures and so on but it's really kind of short, and yet it's the most powerful. A lot can be said about Minka, particularly as it relates to the Akida, because the first Akida lamb, and the first lamb of the of the morning represents uh, Isaac, and the lamb in the afternoon, the Minka lamb, represents Yeshua, the second and final Akida, which is why it has the most power. We should also make note that when um, Peter and John went to the uh, temple at Minka time, which means that they were praying and they were entering into the sacrifice, that that's where they found the man who was asking for alms and he was a lame, he was lame, he had some kind of, uh, you know, uh, illness or, or whatever. And uh, they said, you know, we don't have any silver and we don't have any gold, but what we do have, we're going to give to you. And the man was healed. It was a great miracle. And so this happened also at Minka time. So Minka is just a very... A very powerful time that some of the sages, including, uh, not a sage, but the Ramkal brings down that at Minka time, um, if we include the um, the verses of sacrifice in our prayer, that it's actually uh, a very powerful prayer for pushing back the forces of darkness, the forces of evil. Perhaps that's why the evil inclination wars against us so often at Minka time that, hey, don't, don't pray just stay, stay busy, stay busy, stay busy. Why? Because he doesn't want to be pushed back. All right, one more uh, section here from Pituke Holtim as we're concluding our morning together. This is from the next verse, chapter 36, verse 7. The work was enough for all the work to do, and there was extra. So he's talking here about striving for Hashem. <clears throat> he says, and we'll, we'll, this, is a, this is a great place to sum up our week. If a person keeps his focus on serving Hashem and he believes with perfect faith that he has been brought into this world for no other reason than to do Hashem's will. That is our purpose. We, we were brought here to do Hashem's will. So if he understands this, then he will be calm in his business affairs. He will only do as much as he needs to, to do in order to provide himself with his bare necessities. He will never neglect a single prayer, and he will always keep his fixed times for Torah study. He will fully trust Hashem to provide him with a livelihood. It all comes from Hashem. So we should not neglect our Torah time. We should not neglect our prayer time. We should uh, not set it aside because we're busy, we're trying to do this, trying to do that. We should spend time, we should, we should have that time, and never let it be violated. Says whatever he receives from Hashem through his business efforts will seem to him as plentiful, 
as his main focus is on doing Hashem's will. That's the main focus. If a person conducts himself in this manner, Hashem will bless his handiwork and will provide abundantly for his needs. He shall lack nothing. So it's not, we're not talking here about being lazy. I mean, obviously we have to work. The, the, the Torah does not condone laziness. It does not condone unemployment. It says the exact opposite. We should all work. We should not be lazy. We should, we should be effective in the world, etc. And at the same time, we cannot forget that everything comes from Hashem. So if we become workaholics and we neglect our Torah study, we neglect our prayer time, then we're being counterproductive. So now it says we can understand the verse as follows. The work was enough. This verse refers to a person who decides that nothing will ever cause him to neglect prayer and their fixed times for Torah study, which are called the work of heaven. That's from Baba Batra 21b. He believes it is enough that I'm involved in business at other times when it's not time for fixed or for prayer or fixed times of Torah study. If I earn enough in those times, fine. Otherwise, I would rather survive on bare minimum than ever neglect prayer or the times I've set to do Torah study. And the verse says, and there was extra. When a person conducts himself in this manner, he writes, Hashem will bless his handiwork, and he will have more than enough to meet his needs. When we are faithful to study Torah, and when we are faithful to, to pray and, and to do the will of Hashem, Hashem multiplies our efforts and multiplies our time that we spend working, and so therefore, not only do we not we don't we don't miss anything, but we actually gain something. So, when the Shabbat arrives tonight, shut it down. Whatever you have that's left undone, it's finished, and enter into God's rest, and He will multiply your efforts on the flip side when the Sabbath ends. I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing prep day today. May you be richly blessed. May your Sabbath table be richly blessed. And I want to see everybody at Shul with us tomorrow. So please join us. Please join us online. Invite your friends to join us in person and, and, and or online, whatever. We want to be have everybody there together. Let's fill the house with people who are eager to serve God and to drink of the sweet waters of the Torah. Shalom, shalom. And Shabbat Shalom.